Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Whale Nerds Podcast. This is episode number 68, and I'm here with Caitlin, Adam, and myself, Slater. Hi. How could I be here with myself? <laughs> What's up? <laughs> and Eric is not here. He's out hiking in the forest looking for some weasels or badgers. badgers. He's looking at uh, he's looking at bald eagles right now. He's yeah, I think that's all he's found. But he's looking for badgers, but he hasn't found them. It's so funny. good luck, dude. Galen, how many animals <laughs> since we, since Eric, since Eric has moved to Monterey when we first got there? How many yeah. or when he first got there? How many animals has he looked for for like until he finds one? He finds it and it's like boom, checked off. Now what? It was like yeah. the new uh, the tiger, um, the tiger the, salamander. Yep. Tule uh, elk. The the river otters. The river otters, yeah. Uh, the garter snake. Yep. Oh yeah, the San Francisco garter snake. Um, uh, which is a freaking badass snake. <laughs> Those were the big ones. Oh, we found a yellow-bellied racer. Oh no, he wasn't there that day with me. But the same place where we go looking for the garter snakes, we found a yellow-bellied racer. But yeah, he's the river otters, the tule elk, the mountain lions. Snake. Him and I went look for mountain lions. Also, well, we thought about it. I think we. Oh, we no, we went looking for the. We went looking for the black bear that was spotted up in the um, Jack's Peak. Oh, at Jack's Peak. <laughs> we went the next morning and looked for it. I feel like we literally didn't even get out of the car. We drove up there and we're like, it's not here, and we left. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now him and the badger. He's after. Oh, he found the long tail weasel. I don't know if he was like trying to check it off his list, but he did find you it. You know who else found a long tail weasel? You no, did. because I don't believe you. Your that, boy. That blurry was so, that video was so pixelated. Was <laughs> it for you too, Caitlin? Yeah, it's because Eric was in the group chat with no yeah. iPhone. I know it's such a, <laughs> but it's like, dude, it's not, just, dude. Why does Droid hate it? I, th- I feel like Android hates it so much that they just won't allow us to get like. Video. They're like media message. Forget it. Dude, oh, that. that's definitely that's definitely it. Wow, that's why you're Dude, like, oh I, my was, God. I was literally <laughs> sitting, I was sitting in the harbor in Ventura, eating lunch. I was having a hero, hero pizza switch with my crew, and I was like, Oh my God, what is that? And then I looked, and then it was it had like a rat in its mouth. But yeah, I was like, Ventura, a freaking long-tailed weasel. And I was like, Oh my God, I saw wildlife. Like, I've cool seen an sighting, animal, bro. Like, I know, I'm hyped. <laughs> it's a good time, man. I got, oh, I got Adam. I know. Yeah, it's de- maybe it's a depressing. little too excited. It's kind of funny. Okay, friends. Well, um, let's talk about some whale news, and then let's finish up our discussion on um, the drama unfolding in Washington. Um, drama, drama. So- the last I checked, um, we are up to 14 northern right whale calves. So super exciting. Yay! I'm going to get buttoned when we say something cool, and, and it's going to do, like, golf clap. Burr, like. burr, burr, burr. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so let me open up who the moms are. So, um, King Cat. That's pretty good. Mom Infinity is the mom of calf number 12. She's 19 years old. And this is her first calf. And then um, calf number 13 was born to a whale with just a catalog number, 3720. She's 14 years old. And this is also her first calf. So two first-time moms. But most of them are actually experienced moms, which is, um, I think, probably going to bode pretty well for these babies. 
And then calf number 14 was born to a whale named Champagne. And she's 12 years old. And this is her first calf. So, yay. That's exciting. Awesome. It seems like uh, they're doing pretty well this year in terms of calves. I hope they survive. Survival rate. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's good, though. Go ahead. You go. Go ahead. No, you go. There you go. Ladies first. Ladies first. Come on. I was just going to say, we will have more news um, about right whale protections and um, some of the things that are changing with the fisheries in another episode, but it's kind of a lot of information to go through. So um, I think yeah. we'll hold off on it for now and we'll talk more about it on the, probably the next episode. Um, and then we might try and reach out to some folks out there to get some more insider information as well. Cause I'm not out there right now. So um, I don't know full on what's going on, but there's been a lot of sightings even in um, around Cape Cod the last week or so. So the whales are starting to move back up to the feeding grounds, even though it's only February. So, yeah. Then the other piece of whale news that came out is there is a new species of baleen whale that has been officially uh, designated in the Gulf of Mexico. So, it was, I think they originally thought it was a Brutus whale, but now that yeah. they have enough um, samples, especially genetic samples, they've determined it's a different species of baleen whale entirely. So now they've named it Rice Rice's whale in honor of Dale Rice, who was an American biologist who had a 60-year career in marine mammal science. And uh, he was the first rec- researcher to actually recognize Brutus whales in the Gulf of Mexico. And now that they've determined that they're a different species, they named it after him. So, pretty awesome. Pretty cool. It's cool to see the amount of diversity in the in the Balenoptera family. Um, yeah, there seems seems to be a lot. You know, like the Omuro's whale was sort of recently mm-hmm. discovered as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, who else? You know, what else? Who knows what else is out there? You know, yeah, kind of cool that you have these like fifty foot long creatures that are just like becoming new to science, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and it's exciting to know that like there's still more to discover, right? Like. Totally, like there's. You would think, oh, whales! Like we know, we know all of them now. There's so many of them, and there's so many um, ways to document them out on the water. But like, no, they do still keep you on your toes, which is cool. It's pretty awesome. I I wonder, like, we always talk about, like Slater always talks about, like going back to the Miocene. Like, I wonder how much, like, how <laughs> diverse the group was then. Slater, you're, you're muted. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say that I just watched uh, Night at the Museum the other day. <laughs> yeah, me too. And it's so funny because the I I didn't even remember the scene where the I don't, I don't know I don't even know what kind of whale it was whale? like a blue whale or something. Yeah, yeah. It was a blue whale. And I I just I just remember it go, like spouting and <laughs> exhaling and it blows them back the yeah. bad guys. <laughs> I, have you ever been to that museum? That museum is pretty cool. They actually have that. There's actually a, a really good video on YouTube about that the construction of that blue whale. Um, the replica. I think um, I could be mistaken. What what museum is it? The Smithsonian. The Smithsonian. Yeah. yeah. Smithsonian Natural History. Natural History Museum of New York, right? Oh, maybe it is New York. It's not the Smithsonian. Oh, is it not? Yeah. I think it is the Smithsonian. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure the Mat- Natural History Museum of New York. I've given or so or like um, given them sort of some sort oh, of blue yeah. video. You gave them footage. There. Yeah. Yeah. Let's Google it right now. Let's find out. I'm pretty sure it's the Natural History Museum in New York. 
uh, night at the so Ben Stiller, man. Good one. They come alive at because I just was gonna book my trip. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the Natural History it's Museum like, of New York is the one with the good. blue whale, the big blue whale skeleton. Museum of Natural History. Or it's a blue. Like, I don't know if it's a skeleton. It's oh, yeah, this it's is a blue whale replica. Yeah, replica. Um, it but just they have says this... it's a natural history, but I think it's it, it takes place in New York, so it's got to be there. It's this one. It's an I, I I could click the picture, and it's the big T Rex that's running around in the movie. So nice. Um, there you go. That's all that. There we go. They actually they had an American Museum of Natural History. They had a they made a video on uh, what color is a blue whale, and they said it was actually blue. I know, but the, the whole the whole point of the video, it comes to the conclusion that it's that it is blue, and I was like, <laughs> well, it's so. And and I Kinda, think Caitlin and I have talked really. about this before. It's like when they first saw blue whales, I think they saw them from the water, but I think a lot of it was like good video was from helicopters and stuff back then. So it was like when you look through the surface, they are that teal, blue. Oh, for sure, and color, that's, right? That's, so that's why they get they their get name, name, but but you know, in actuality, I've always you know seen them as like a gray ish color like a light gray or like I mean, maybe you can like maybe a, say there's a hint a of bluish blue in there. a bluish tint yeah that's true um, but it's a cool video it's a, it's a cool video on what color is a blue whale check it out on youtube by the american museum of natural history nice or you could check out adam ernster on youtube <laughs> yeah it's the blue, blue whale, whale short the santa story barbara channel <laughs> santa barbara channel <laughs> wait I'll, do you have I'll that on your bro. on your youtube or is it on your What's it on? Oh, yeah. It's on your Vimeo, huh? It's on. It's on everything. That actually has fifteen thousand views on YouTube. Wow! Ah, dude, what a sellout, bro! I only keep so mine fancy. to a minimum of a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, fifteen hundred views, too much. Got to delete it. Yeah, dude. Goodbye. People start oh naming gosh. the whale. They own the whale. Oh no! Yeah, we said we were gonna stay on on, on topic on this podcast, but here oh, we yeah. Are. No, that's not a thing. That never happened. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so where are we at with the? We did the we did some of the whale news. Yep, I think that's all the whale news I wanted to do, and then I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about this story we've been following in Washington and um, tease out a few more things, and then kind of wrap up uh, where we're at. So before we launch into like any more information on the science stuff, we did have a listener who seemed like they maybe interpreted. I don't know. I think they maybe missed the mark on what we were trying to say. So I just wanted to clarify a few things just in case anyone else was confused about where we stand with things um, and just kind of like clarify a few things. So um, we're a podcast, first of all. We're not the end-all, be-all source of information about whales. So if you're using us as your only source about whales and then using that to further spread information about whales and whatever platform you have um we're not perfect so just know that like a good a good method is to check a lot of different sources before you start putting out your messaging just to make sure that you're thorough you've done your homework we do a lot of that and so thank you for listening and being inspired by us and then taking our messaging out further i really appreciate that but just know we're not the only ones that are out there talking. Caitlin does a lot of research. I make a lot up, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I read the notes before we podcast <laughs> that I type up. <laughs> um, and like, 
we're we're researching topics that interest us, right? Because it's our podcast. It's what we want to talk about. Um, so you're never going to get a 100% complete story about everything that's going on in the real world because you're getting information that we find interesting or that we've experienced. Um, but there's whales in every ocean, right? Like, And there's people that work with those whales all over the world. And that's the beauty of the, the internet is that um, you can get sources from everywhere now. So just know like we're a podcast. We're not an encyclopedia. Um, and no one group knows everything there is to know about whales. So just, you know, that's why it's always good to have multiple sources. Um, and a lot of the things that we share in our discussions are our opinions. Um, that's kind of part of our job as the host of the podcast is like, we take the information that we learn and we share our opinions based on our experience and the, the information that we have available. So just know that some of the stuff that we're saying, like, that's our opinion. That doesn't have to be your opinion, right? Um, and we do we do trust science and the scientific process. And that's the really cool thing about science is that it's a never-ending story. The only thing that will refute something that's discovered by science is better science. And so that's something that I think we all wholeheartedly believe in. Um, but science is meant to be critiqued and it's meant to be questioned. And when science is funded by um, certain organizations, you may have to ask questions about that. Like, here's a good example, fossil fuel companies doing their own research on climate change and coming with wildly different results from independent scientists. Exactly. Um, so you do have to ask some questions because sometimes poorly done or misguided science, like an example with the fossil fuel industry, can really misinform management. And then you can end up with a situation like we're in right now with climate change, where these companies knew for decades that this was a problem and somehow the science they were doing was informing management saying that it wasn't a problem. And so it's okay to be skeptical of things, but make sure you're asking questions from a lot of different sources so that you can make a, a good conclusion on things. Um, and that's why science goes through peer review. And that's why people continue to study things after one paper's done. Right. So um, that's kind of where our I'm at with that. I don't know if you guys have any other thoughts on that. Just wanted to make sure that we're clarifying, you know, where we stand on things. Go ahead, Slater. <laughs> no, I yeah. completely agree with you. I think that the whole point of our podcast was to take some of these scientific papers that I barely understand, and then you and Eric in the beginning, and now Adam, and now we can all go through and dissect it and make it um, easier for I to learn and everyone else to learn that listens to the podcast. Yeah, and maybe you don't come up with we, what we come up with, and that's okay. Like, do do you to the best of your abilities. Um, and we do all work in ecotourism, um, and that was kind of a point that was raised. And, like, we're not oblivious to the fact that ecotourism has some level of disturbance on the animals that we view. Of course it does. We're going on boats using fossil fuels that make noise. Um, but where we usually are defending ecotourism is on the responsible ecotourism operations. I want to clarify responsible as one of the phrases, because not every operator is as good as all of them. Um, and so when we're talking about ecotourism and outcomes of, you know, impacts and things, we're talking about responsible operations versus um, whatever impact they're having on the environment. A poor, poorly done ecotourism operation of course is going to not have the same benefits for the animal they're watching so that's like when we say ecotourism we're talking about responsible ecotourism because not every operator out there does a great job and that's up to you to figure out who that is <laughs> up to you to decide 
Definitely. But I will say that Kaylin, Adam, Eric, and I do try to pick the proper whale watch companies. So most of the ones that we've worked with or been out with have been operations that do a very good job of yeah. being responsible near the animals and trying to protect the animals. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, oh, go ahead, Adam. I just wanted to say that, like, you know, again, with this whole um, topic here is that, you know, we are a podcast that tries to focus on science communication. And, like, a lot of these papers are very wordy and very hard to understand mm -hmm. and can be very confusing at times. Um, so that's, you know, why we're here. Like, Caitlin mm -hmm. does an excellent job at at breaking that down and, and making it you know, comprehensible to, to me or Slater or anybody who's listening, you know, like that's something that is really hard to do, you know, and that's, that's where a lot of scientists fail is, you know, with all their jargon and, and numbers and different graphs and data. And, you know, that's all great. And, you know, it might show a trend here or there, or it might, you know, try to prove their point or whatever, the, whatever the case may be, but, you know, coming up with your own conclusions and being able to decipher what they're trying to say can be hard and so that's that's you know why we're here um if you guys aren't part of a of the group on facebook called cedal fauna i highly recommend joining that group um there's constantly a bunch of articles um and different you know whale news posted there that you know everybody comments on it's not just us it's other whale watchers it's other scientists quite a bit of drama whole, too <laughs> bit of drama. but Sorry, like you know off, you, you're, you're getting you're getting a whole bunch of different perspectives. So if you just don't want to use our perspective, which is totally fine, you know, we're just one piece of the puzzle, then you can do that. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, like that paper we were talking about is, you know, not the best science is what we've come up with. Like that, that's just, that's just what we've yeah, thought. I just and, think it's you know, incomplete for ourselves. Yeah. It's incomplete. And, you know, those are opinions that we've come up with ourselves. And, yeah, we do work in the ecotourism industry and we are going to defend, to defend ourselves. And But at the same time, we're not discrediting science. Um, I think that's yeah. very important to know is that, you know, I'm studying science for my undergrad. Caitlin has, Eric has, Slater's a photographer. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you, I think you get what I'm trying to say. You know, we're all here for the sciences. But. At the same time, we are here for the Southern residents too. And you know, that, that paper and all the regulations and the new bills that are being passed and everything put a lot of damage on that, on that industry and also those whales. So at the end of the day, mm -hmm. like we're gonna say what needs to be said. Yeah. But again, that's, that's our opinion, so. Yeah. So with all that in mind, I do wanna discuss a couple other papers briefly that kind of fit into this puzzle um, and then kind of wrap up on some thoughts of like, there was a hearing recently about Senate Bill 5330 um, yeah. and about, I think it's 5306, yep. yeah, the salmon recovery. Um, and then I think we're going to kind of put this coverage of this topic um, back more on just kind of like a news update type thing um, and see how it develops from there. So the paper that came out in Frontiers recently that we talked about last episode um, basically was a remodeling of data that had been collected and published in other papers. So I went back and looked through those other papers um, because it was like this narrowing or like this truncation of data based on like how it was going to work for their modeling if the tag collected the right information for long yeah. enough. 
Yeah. So the paper that it references in the introduction was this paper um, by Holt in 2017. It's also a NOAA paper. Um, and so a couple things that like stuck out to me, if you want to pull up the link, you guys can, but yeah. a couple things that stuck out to me was in the introduction. Um, there's a reference to a NOAA report that claims that the distance regulations that were set from 100 yards to 200 yards were written for all killer whales because most vessel operators cannot distinguish the ESA listed Southern resident killer whales from other ecotypes. Versus transients. Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't chased down the that. 2000, yeah. I haven't chased down that 2011 uh, report Paper. to look at okay. when they say vessel operators, are they saying all vessel operators or are they Whale watch. Whale watch operators because I feel like that's kind of, yeah, I feel like (laughs) it's kind of a slap in the face to ecotourism operators because, like, they live and die by identifying these whales. Exactly. Like, there's not a single company in the San Juans that can't differentiate between bigs and southern residents. Everybody knows the difference. If it's all vessel operators, I could believe that because private boaters and fishermen and ferry captains. Oh, definitely not. Like, they don't. They don't know. I mean, it's Definitely. not a part of their livelihood to know. So why would they know? But they do pretty well up there, right, Adam? With the ferry, like the ferries, especially, they they, yeah, they can get yeah, a hold I've, of them, right? And yeah, I mean, as much as they're not going to slow down, they really can't. But yeah, no, for sure. I mean, they, they they see whales as well. You know, they're in the same area, and for the most part, they try to I don't know educate people about them, but they're not whale watch companies. You know, at the end of the day, yeah. they're ferries and. Or salmon fishermen yeah. or their tanker ships yeah. like the tanker ships obviously aren't going to move out of the way but and like every boat operator has a different priority when they're out on the water right i mean everyone's operator priority is safety but then like what is your vessel doing on the water not everybody's out there to watch whales some people are out there to catch fish some people are out there to transport cargo some people are out there oh Caitlin just fell off the earth. <laughs> Caitlin just fell off the earth. Some but she's totally right, you know. Cargo. Yeah, and you know, you have you have private boaters out there that, you know, might want to watch whales themselves, but they're not as experienced as the whale watch captain. So it really is um what happened? Oh, there you are. Oh, there Hi. you are. You're back. Hey. How much of that? How much did you hear of what I said? You got to transport <laughs> cargo and then oh. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. Well, the point I'm trying to make is not everybody's out there to run their boat to look at whales, right? So Definitely I just not. thought it was interesting that it was worded saying that they changed the regulations because they didn't have faith that people could distinguish the types. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but which people? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And to be honest, yeah. let's say this this is like a brand new company and they haven't watched this other residents very long. I guarantee they know someone and they have such a strong um, platform with that app that they use up there to, to gather all the data. Yeah. They could figure it out within minutes, yeah. like within seconds, yeah. honestly. They could text Sarah or Jeff. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the community up there is, is so rooted around these whales that, you know, w- whether it be just local people or the whale watchers or the tribes that are there, like like people, I hope for the most part, a, know about the whales, but if they don't, it's so easy to learn and it's so yeah. easy to reach out to others and everybody in the community is so willing to help because we're all there for the, the betterment of the whales, whether it be the bigs, yeah. whether it be the humpbacks, whether it be the southern residents. Um, it's just, it's, it's honestly, Washington has been, 
is definitely out of all the places I've worked or been to like a very tight knit community and yeah. it's based around the wildlife and the nature and the whales. Yeah. So I just thought that was kind of an interest. That was like my reaction when I was reading that. I was like, Oh, okay. Um, I guess I never really looked at it that way before. I mean, I get it. Management has to try and write it for the best blanket policy they can make, because if you get way too specific, then it's really difficult to enforce. And you also have to think about the practicality of enforcement when you write regulations. That was an issue we raised years ago in California. It was like, you know, the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary wanted to make these regulation changes and they didn't even have an enforcement officer on the payroll. They had the position had been ba- vacant for five years. Yeah. So like, we how said, are you then how are you like you want to change these rules? But like when we have someone that violates them, then what is our avenue to pursue it? And they were just like, well, we don't have someone right now we're looking for someone and it's like okay so now what <laughs> yeah definitely so Ugh. um so then um this 2017 paper right our data was collected 2010 2011 this paper actually used data from 2012 and 2014 so um the 2020 paper lost some of that data based on like what they were trying to like what the tag collected to meet their parameters Um, so this was during the time where the distance regulation moved from a hundred yards to 200 yards. So, yeah. So what they have documented in this study is that the noise levels received at the tags on the whales wasn't any different during the distance change. Um, they don't really discuss it a whole lot, but they do recognize that only a one year baseline of before the change is like can be very limiting in your analysis Um, and they do Mm -hmm. also recognize that limited samples are an issue to try and model this and um, I think some of the things that make that so complicated is that the bathymetric properties of the area that you are interacting with the whales and have the tag on the whales can have a lot of different acoustic features but also like you didn't eliminate any vessels from the water Right. Like you just pushed back the whale watch vessels a hundred yards. So between like, you know, not having a lot of data and then not actually removing vessels from the water, I'm not surprised that there wasn't a discernible difference. Yeah. Because there's also a lot of background noise that is always going to be there too. It's not just the immediate like whale noise at the vicinity of the whales. So then this, go ahead. No, I, I I just keep getting frustrated. Like, like <laughs> when you look at the like the majority of the whale watch boats. Granted, there are some larger ones, but the majority of the of the boats there are either ribs or smaller boats that run off of two hundred fifty horsepower outboards. And when yeah. you get to whales, you're going less than seven knots. So, so those yeah. engines are not putting out a lot of noise, and it's just frustrating yeah. when you see. You know, three whale watch boats on scene, but then a freaking tanker ship comes through that has these massive, massive engines that put out yeah. a whole bunch of noise. It's like, how are you going to? It's just so frustrating. I can't. This topic just so, gets me heated all, no, all okay, the time. Because we're going to talk more about that because yeah, the, it's important the original, to know. The original data collection for that 2017 paper I've just been talking about is actually in a 2015 paper by. Um, Houghton at all. I think I said it yep. right. Houghton. Um, um, yep. So this is where the original DTAG data was collected. And the paper was um, 
Let me pull it up here. Let me read the title. Where'd it go? Uh, the relationship between vessel traffic and noise levels received by killer whales. So um, just a couple notes about the introduction stuff, and then we'll talk more about the data collection logistics, because this is going to answer some of our questions. What types of vessels were on scene? What's the estimated noise output? That kind of stuff, yeah. those questions that we had from the 2020 paper, because it wasn't directly addressed in the 2020 paper. It was addressed in this paper. It was addressed in this paper. So in the introduction, something that kind of caught my eye that I thought was a little bit, I don't know, not. I feel like they could have chased this down a little better. It claims that the NOAA recovery plan um, for Southern resident killer whale states that from 1996 to 2001, the Southern resident killer whale decline was for unknown reasons. Um, if any of you lived in the Pacific Northwest during that time frame, you'll remember that the salmon fishery went through a monumental crash. The EPA on their website has Chinook population data showing all the way back to the 1980s, and you can see the crash in the fishery right there on their website. That's public Unknown. information. Yeah, so it's kind, of, it's kind of frustrating that the NOAA recovery plan is claiming that that period of years, the decline is for unknown reasons. Um, and then some people then take that as an opportunity to say, well, whale watching was on the rise during that time. Well, the food was plummeting. So... And this is just after these whales had bounced back close to 100 after commercial yeah. extortion for the aquarium trade. Aquariums had stopped, yeah. Yeah. So they kind had just rebounded. barely, like, kind of rebounded from that, and yeah. then the food source tanked. So See, I feel that's... like you could have probably chased that down a little better for the recovery plan, which is what this paper is citing. So the recovery plan is where I have the issues. Like, they could have really – I think that they could have answered that a little better. <laughs> Well, I just think that blaming it on noise is not like it's just I don't think it's okay. I'm sorry. Like it one, we know that the food is the the main problem, like probably 98 percent of the problem, to be honest, in my opinion. Yeah. In second, like when even when we say like, okay, there's cruise ships and tankers and all these boats that come through. Okay, why are the killer, the transient killer whales, the big killer whales doing fine with all of that noise? Yeah. yeah. So much noise. It, why are yeah. they thriving? They're at like, what was, the, what they say the percentage was the increase per year? Uh, four to four to six percent every year. And yeah. a couple of years ago, they're at 450. Now they're almost going to hit 600. And there's this video from Sept September 20th, 2019. I just posted in our, um, in our topics of the Southern resident killer whales riding the wake. Of, of, a, of a container ship. Yeah, I remember. It. So I'm like, it's like, okay, they're disturbing them so bad that they're going to ride and jump and play and spin around in circles in the wake of the container ship. But whale just watching wait. is a problem. Just, just wait. We're going to slog through a couple harder things to talk about. Then we're no, you're talk pissing about me off, Caitlin. <laughs> 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 I, can see, I can see Adam over here twitching every once in a while. Yeah, I am they're twitching. Like, I'm bugging out. For our Patreon people, you're going to have some good facial expressions watching them just have to sit through listening to some of this. So the other thing in the introduction that um, I just want to kind of point out and just clarify is there's a 1998 Whale Watch Company figures um, reference claiming that southern resident killer whales are the primary viewed species for those companies. In 2015, that's when this paper was published. That's, they took that data from 1998. In 2019, 2018, 2019, 2020, that's not the case anymore. 
these companies aren't that southern residents are not the primary viewed animal for these companies anymore well, so i think that's something important to know how many times yeah. you see them in a year now yeah so what's i think that, you know if you're going to use if you're going to use data this old you have to be able to look at it with those caveats right like if management's going to use these papers because this is the most up-to-date information they have I hope that whoever's going through it when they're doing their management review can see some of those things and realize the reality of the current situation because that's what you need to regulate is what's going on right now, not what was going on before. This is my, this is like my problem with papers like this. It's just like when, when you want to prove a point, obviously you're going to snake your way through and try to find the points that like help prove your point. And so like with the vessel, yeah. um, Totally lost my train of thought. With you know, like, like <laughs> completely like disregarding what is happening now and using what'd you say, information from the 1998 or what was it, 2001? Uh, 1998 whale watch company information saying that they're viewing. Yeah, the like like yeah. back then, a hundred percent. Back then, the southern residents were the were the main viewing killer whale in yeah, the Salish Sea. There no, was there were no the big things weren't even yeah, there. Well, things were barely yet. even there. Yeah. Humpbacks weren't even there yet. Yeah. Humpbacks weren't even there yet. Bigs were bigs were kind of like like the offshores now. Like yeah, you can see them there, but they they weren't there every single day yeah. of the year like they yeah. are now. And nowadays, the bigs are literally there year around because they have the food source. And it's like, how yeah. are you going to use this this information from 1998 in a paper from tw 20 years later? Like how, yeah. how is that credible? Well. And sometimes, like, you know, like the Whale Watch Company summaries and reports and things. I mean, up there, I think they do a good job of putting out recent information, especially with the Whale Watch Association. But sometimes, like, that's the only time an assessment of the companies was done, you know? So that's, like, the only thing they can reference. Well, the Whale Watch Association wasn't, I don't know if it was put together how long ago, but it wasn't it was around to date with it was, an app. Yeah. Yeah, but it that's wasn't true. up to date with an app where you could be, you know, on the clock all day. Saying updating how many what sightings you have. Yeah. yeah. Who you're yeah. seeing, what, you yeah. know, who wasn't but, with the pod that day and all that. So, but yeah. regardless, like, like the, 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 the subjects that they're watching in Washington nowadays have completely flip flopped, mainly because the Southern residents aren't there. Like, yeah. they haven't, like, for the past couple of years, they haven't been there in May. They haven't been there in June. They show up in July for a little bit. When I worked there, they were there for, like, a couple, a handful of days in July, you know? So, yeah. like, when you, when you go from a pop, when you go from watching a population that is pretty much there every day for three months, for three months, four months out of the year, to a population that is there for only a handful of days out of the year, like, of, of course, that's going to change what you see. And then you yeah. have another population killer whales that come in and are there every single day and like of course you're going to watch them and also like just out of my own experience when i worked there like there were some days when the residents were around and there was bigs around and pretty much every single vessel you know that could watch the bigs would watch the bigs yep. you know yeah we're not trying to watch the southern residents and we're not trying to like just put yeah. more stress than we it's need to yeah, it's more of a hassle to honestly go watch them sometimes, too, because, one, depending on where they're at, the regulations could be a half mile away or a quarter mile away, yeah, right? Right. And I'm like, killing. Yeah, you have to be a half mile away. Like, People want to see well, so it's like, uh, you know, we they're going to give you the best experience they possibly can in the most responsible way they can. So it's like it's almost better to not go see the residents sometimes in and specific areas. And they've, yeah. made it, they've made it so hard. 
with, with, you know, obviously there's a lot of companies on San Juan Island itself, but there's also a lot of companies in Victoria. There's companies on Orgas Island. There's companies on different islands. And there's companies that leave out of Anacortes. In Canada. Exactly. So, like, going to the oh, residence wasn't the best shot. And, you know, even the Canadian companies when I was there couldn't, literally couldn't watch this on the residence because of the laws. So it's just like. Yeah. So that's all, all I'm saying is <laughs> I'm hoping. Space. I'm hoping. That management, when they go to review these things and make these decisions, is considering all the things that we're talking about. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that that's happening, but that if I was in management, these are all the things I would want to tease out before I made a decision. So um, the, the DTAG data, again, was collected 2010, 2011, 2012. Um, May 2011 is when the regulations changed from 100 yards to 200 yards. And management also recommended that seven knot approach speed yeah yeah so um because some of the information that came out of these papers basically said that the biggest determining uh factor in the noise a vessel is going to produce is how fast it's going and how many propellers it has so if you're going slow it doesn't matter what kind of engines you have you're making a lot less noise yeah you're running at really low rpms it's yeah not that hard so, and so, then the question, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, for those that, you know, haven't been in a whale watch boat in Washington, essentially what happens, right, is, like, in the morning, you don't know where the whales are, just like any other company in any part of the world, right? So you got to go out and find them. And for the most part, the network up there is really connected to each other. So, and, you know, everybody wants each other to, to succeed. So, like, when you find a group of whales, like, hey, you know, I got the 36 A's here. Hey, I got two humpbacks here. Hey, I got the 65 A's here. And so once you get that report, right, you're like going to a group of whales that might be closer to you or might be further away. Or like you can just obviously every different tour company has different priorities. Like sometimes you'll you'll only be with the whales for 45 minutes and then you'll go and search for something else. And maybe you'll go watch bald eagles or whatever. But when you rock up to whales, like when you're a half mile away, you pretty much slow down to seven knots and approach the whales at seven knots from that half mile away. So you're, you're a half you mile closer, away. You're going slower. You're going slower. Hey, you're so basically idling. You're, you're basically idling and your engines are pretty much producing. And, and that's why, that's why they came up with that seven knot rule. Cause that, yeah. that was, that was the level in which they would pretty much produce the smallest amount of noise while still being able to watch whales and follow whales mm -hmm. or whatever. So I just so wanted to clarify, like, that's how you come up to yeah, whales responsibly. Yeah, and that's, so that's basically what companies were doing already. So that's not a big, yeah. when you make that recommendation as management, that's not a big change for whale watchers. No. Um, but I think it is a good point of etiquette to publish because sure. maybe private boaters don't know that or fishermen don't know oh, that. So hopefully not. from then on, when they see whales, they'll slow down to seven knots. That gives them a good number to go on until they're past the whales or whatever. The trick is, what if you don't intend to watch the whales at all and you just blast on by at 25 knots, then you're making a lot oh. of noise if you're, you know, uh, if you're a private motor, for example, you know? 100%. And, you know, and there definitely, there definitely were times, you know, and I'm, I know it happens that, you know, when I was there, we would just be, you know, cruising at, cruising at 20 knots or whatever, and then boom, oh my gosh, the 36 A's right there off of Waldron Island. Like, yeah, we're going to slow down and, and watch them, but you're still... You know, as as a whale watcher, you, you can you can see what what kind of whales they are. You can see their distance. You are pretty good with distances on the water, and you can slow down. So even when you are the first, you know, what, when you, even when you are the first boat on a group of whales, like 
you're still not acting irresponsibly around them. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a good recommendation that came out of the paper and, and turned into something practical for management. Um, so remember how we had all those questions about what was the research vessel doing during data collection? So this yeah. 2015 paper clarifies a lot of it. So the researcher, uh, the research vessel was stated to commonly travel parallel to or behind the tagged whale to do their focal fo follows. Um, but cool. the research vessel also followed the whale at what they call, quote, close distances, which is an average of 179 meters, so less than 200 yards, um, to obtain accurate data and collect other samples, including things like taking fecal samples and things like that. Um, and then they also stated that the research vessel was most frequently closest to the whale compared to all the other boats around. And 27 of their 57 tag deployments were in the presence of only the research boat. And that data was analyzed separately from the rest of the data and was not publicly available in the literature. So I have some <laughs> questions about that because I think it would be really good to ground truth the effects of the tag and the research vessel, that whole process to have that data available just, just to see, like, do these animals know your boat and what's their reaction of being tagged? Like, that would be my question. Like, do you know when your mom's car pulls up to the house? Versus somebody else's. Yeah. Yeah. My dogs do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so do you well, think these it's... whales maybe know the sound of a boat that pokes them in the back with a tag? Oh, maybe. 100%. They know. <laughs> Dude, we, we already know that we say that even like humpbacks will get used to a boat. Yeah. Like after but, I mean, even uh, two it, days of seeing it, the same whale, you, you know, they'll, they'll end up being come, come closer to the boat if they choose or, to. Or if it's a boat that's harassed them before, does that create more of a stress response when that boat is around? You know what I'm saying? That's my question. Well, something I learned at a, actually was at a marine park a long time ago. And they actually, I went through like a, the back, the back side of the marine park. It wasn't like a, during a show or anything like that. They, it was like the, um, with the vet, they, the killer, the adult actually was bottomless dolphins. The bottomless dolphins could see the vet walking by yep. and would go to the opposite side of the tank. Yeah. But when anyone like, else walked, when anyone else walked by, like someone that fed them or anything else, they would come right over to that side. Yeah. But if they they could see her in her coat, like how crazy yeah. is that? Under the water, out the they're water. They're like, this lady pokes me and drops like, my blood. Yeah, <laughs> takes, Get away yeah, from me. She takes blood samples and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And so they knew, like, dude, that's crazy. So they obviously so, could tell a boat if they could see a person, one person out of the water. Yeah. You know. So that's that's my personal question. Um, are they obligated to provide that information as part of their scientific process, especially if they're explicitly saying that it's not in the literature? No, but I, that, that would be my question is how much of a stress response. It might be a good way to find out what the stress response is to the tagging vessel and then how much that's biasing your data, because there are other the rest of the data is the research vessel plus other vessels viewing the whales and that's what your data set is because also private whale watch vessels were excluded from the analysis because they couldn't get the engine information from those but they couldn't get the specs from those vessels it's because it's 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 they're all the same yeah they're yeah, all, they're all the same thing it's a 250 horsepower Yamaha but, outboard, I mean, or if to it's do, inboard, it's a certain inboard. To plug, like, to plug everything part. in for the model, you don't have the exact numbers, and you can't just for make sure. them up, definitely. right? So definitely, definitely. they had to exclude that from the analysis, too, which is unfortunate because I think that the etiquette of private whale watch vessels 
versus commercial operations where these regulations are really going to be in effect, their etiquette's a lot worse. So Yeah, they just don't know. Yeah. And then they did rank the noise levels of different vessels um, based on data they collected, but also some of them are assumed from manufacturers, which is if you're out there collecting noise information with a hydrophone and with the hydrophones on the tags, I don't know why you didn't get enough information, but um, the inboard engines are the loudest, obviously. They're bigger. Yeah, they're, for sure. They're diesel. They, they rumble at a low pitch. Yeah. Then the um, Arneson surface drive, this is assumed from the manufacturer to be just a little bit louder than an outboard engine. Then, um, so then outboard engines are next. Then electric is assumed to be slightly louder than the jet drive engine. So the jet drive is the quietest based on their data. I don't know how big these jet drive engines or how big yeah. these jet drive boats were. I would have had to go through like all of the little tedious charts. Um, it was so like, like a little lawyer over here. <laughs> you really <laughs> are. Just saying. Like, I thought it was interesting. Data. <laughs> like I didn't go through all of it, but um, I did go through a lot of it. <laughs> Um, Dang, so that kind of that kind of matches up with what we thought, right? Inboard engines are the loudest, then outboard, then jet drive. Like that's not a huge surprise to anyone. Yeah, nobody. Yeah. So, um, and then this this study does discuss and acknowledge the shortcomings of the modeling of all the vessel characteristics, and talks a lot about how they had to continuously adjust what variables were used in their analysis, which is where they came up with like pr number of propellers and speed were the biggest noise makers. Um, they did say that there could be some effect from the research vessel and that bathymetric features um, and other noise sources, sources in the background also have a role to play, which I, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to be the person that goes through all of that hydrophone data. Like, I think I'd have a headache afterwards, like, oh, holy moly. And it's a mess. Like it's, there's, <laughs> It's chaotic. <laughs> I think I think another interesting point that you quickly brought up was the fact that what did you say they're averaging like one seventy something meters, which is just under two hundred yards. Yeah. But I, I don't understand how you're trying to write a paper about vessel noise and distance, how vessel noise and distance affects killer whales, but you're also collecting fecal samples you're also collecting other sources mm -hmm. of data and it's like like shouldn't you just focus on oh i think that they decided that moment, to use like data you're trying to do they tried they used data that was already put together yeah and it wasn't for this specific yeah. topic yep. and they're just yep. using data that was, so they didn't have to go collect their own but they're that's also using I'm, it from a date that's, that's way back when that that's what i'm saying with, yeah is if, if well, you're trying to prove if, you, if you're trying to write a paper on something shouldn't you Wait. I don't know. It just makes sense for me to like have research and, and go out there and research that yourself instead of having to reach for these other papers or reach for this other data that well, is focused on something else like fecal sampling or whatever. Yeah. My understanding is that this, the D tags and stuff was funded by NOAA. And when you have limited time and resources, I could see how you for combine sure. several Definitely. projects Definitely. just because otherwise you wouldn't have the time and money to do all those projects separately. Definitely. Good point. So, but you do have to, make it pretty clear in your discussion that like those are some of the shortcomings of your data collection yes. well then Definitely. they should get new data from a 2019 20 21 perspective if they're going to try to change regulations on yeah. something like they're doing yeah yeah like this 2020 that affects paper, a lot of people 
that came out with that new modeling about foraging behavior in the presence of whales. You know, some of that's 11-year-old data. And I think that's our biggest bone that we have to pick with this thing is that, like, you could have collected more data more recently that would give you a better picture of what's going on and, and use that model. I want to say something. We're not against tagging whales for science. But I think that it does change the behavior of those animals when that research vessel had to pull up within 10 feet of them to tag them. And then, you know, whether they scoot it off or not, they still change the behavior of that whale. And they're very smart. And we don't know how long that that tag affects that animal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think now if you were to do this sort of study... um, with the technology that you have at your disposal with drones and stuff, maybe the focal follow aspect could have been done where the research vessel was pulled way away and just used a drone to track the boats and the whales. And you could have used photogrammetry to determine their spacing. So if you were to collect this data more recently, then the research vessel doesn't have to be in there at all biasing the results, you know? So that's, that's something that if they were to do it more recently, I think, would have been a critical factor if they hadn't done it. But since this this data is 11 years old, it's like that wasn't a possibility back then. So the paper also suggests, the 2015 paper suggests that they could potentially calculate historic noise ve- uh, levels with the models that they've come up with due to substantial data existing on vessel traffic characteristics of the Salish Sea. Um, which could potentially be interesting, but it, it made me think of this question, like, would it be possible to build a soundscape for the entire Salish Sea? Because some areas are going to be louder than others just by the nature of the underwater structures. Symmetry. Yeah. yeah. And so then, you know, maybe it's a better way to protect the whales by creating more of those no-go zones where the anthropogenic noise is going to be, quote unquote, louder for the whales. And then this, if that zone is also a prime Chinook habitat, if those two things co- coincide, if you want to recommend vessels not be around whales where they're foraging and where they have a hard time hearing, I think maybe you need to figure out where those loud areas are that they're trying to hunt, you know? Someone needs to hire Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's my a thought. Very, it's a very good point. You know, I, I think the no-go zones should be thought of like that. You know, it should obviously yeah. be... I think areas where Chinook um, salmon hangout should be obviously the first priority and then probably vessel noise a second um, and not just base it off of where. Salmon are a very mobile species, but I'm sure that there are some areas where those two things overlap. For sure. I, I personally don't know, but I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there are. That's my thought. So then. I found this that was published last year. <laughs> You're amazing. How do you do this? I don't know, dude. When she has time, she's like freaking getting a sunburn in Maui. And the next thing you know, she's going through 18 documents. Like, yeah, you're freaking <laughs> tying up to the mooring buoy. She's like, in the yeah, water, I researched this underwater like, during yeah, a snorkel trip. Like, yeah, exactly. uh, what's that? Uh, I watch, dude. She's scrolling through it while she's just snorkeling. like on my surfboard, yeah. like, tick, 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 tick. <laughs> so then this paper came out. From, it's called Surface Behaviors Correlate with Prey Abundance and Vessels in Endangered Killer Whale Population. And the lead author is Christine uh, Bubak, who 
was so nice to email me the paper because it was published on Wiley and you were supposed to pay to get it. But it says so sweet. you can contact the researcher and um, they can share the information. So I emailed her and she sent it to me right away, which was oh, so nice. Um, so the folks that worked on this paper were from University of Alberta, uh, Whale Research Lab in Friday Harbor, the Whale Museum in Friday Harbor, and the Department of Physiology at Ripon College in Wisconsin. WI's Wisconsin, right? Yeah, yeah. Wisconsin. Um, okay, so they did a really interesting thing. So you know that um, observation station that they have at Lime Kiln where they do like data collection from land at Lime Kiln, right? Yep. They've been doing that for a lot longer than the data they used in this paper, but from 1996 to 2019, they looked at salmon population um, with a couple different sources to kind of gauge that, vessel presence, frequency of sightings of southern resident killer whales, and then um, the surface active behaviors of those whales during the encounters from the observation point in Lime Kiln. So this is a very long data set um, with recent data and um, in the introduction, when you read through it, it's pretty amazing how many different things they, they tease out as um, detailed parts of the issues with Southern residents. Um, mm -hmm. They talk a lot about how the food is a big issue and um, that these animals are incredibly social because they're talking about surface active behavior. So things like peck slapping, tail slapping, logging, breaching, um, all that kind of stuff they talk pretty well in detail about uh, the initial decline of southern residents for the aquarium trade and then you know their their population kind of matching with the shortfalls in salmon stock and then they describe their study site at lime kiln and how long they've been collecting data and then they have a table that describes all the different behaviors and they have a pretty specific list like the surface active behaviors, they have a breach, a cartwheel, a tail slap, a dorsal fin slap, a pectoral fin slap, and then um, other surface active behaviors where they're not making noise. They have logging, spy hopping, kelping, fluking, rolling over. So, like, this is a, a big amount of data that they're collecting. Yeah. Um, and then they have, they reference all the updated catalogs. They talk about um, L87 and his little pod switching. And yeah, so... that's my boy. That's my freaking yeah, boy. Hey, but mine's freaking amazing. So wow. they they actually don't count him as part of L Pod during the encounters because he's not sided with L Pod. So they kind of clarify all of that. <laughs> and then they talk a lot about Chinook salmon abundance, and they use data from um, Department of Fisheries and Oceans in Canada, and also from the U.S. side. Um, especially on the Fraser River, because that's like a really important run for Southern residents. Yeah. And um, let's see, how did they, they use catch data and also they made like an index because it's like more like a proxy um, value than an exact number of salmon. Um, they use West Coast Vancouver Island runs Fraser Late runs, Oregon Coast runs, um, and then they use some information from Canada to look at how much food is around. Mm. So their question was, are killer whales more surface active in the presence of vessels and when there's more food? Like, 
you know, because we're talking about energy expenditure. At the same time? or Like, just in general. They're trying to answer all these different questions. Okay. So. I feel like it's very tough. Like, I feel like it's impossible to be like, are killer whales more active when vessels are around? Because, like, do you know if they're active when vessels aren't around? Yeah. So they do have they do have data when there's no vessels around and they're observing them from that station. Oh, okay. So, gotcha. Yeah. Um, so there is a time when southern residents aren't being watched by boats. Wow. So it's like it's like, <laughs> it's like if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? To yeah. Hear it? Yeah. Exactly. In reality. Southern <laughs> resident killer whales making splashes. And contrary to popular belief, like there are times when these whales don't have any boats around them. Um, so let's see, where's, where's my, my paragraph here? This one I didn't take notes on because I was too tired last night. So I'm just like going back through the paper, which is yeah. making it a little bit slow. You're crazy, bro. Um, okay. In a good way. So basically what it was saying is that when whale watch boats are around, the whales do present more surface active behaviors. J, uh, J pod. And L-pod are the most surface active of all of them. K-pod is the least. Um, But on years where there is less salmon abundance on their index, they're less surface active in general. So. Wonder why. Yeah. So their thought is that. um, And then they're, they're the most surface active when multiple pods are present so if, if more than one uh oh, resident sure. pod is social there time. they're much more cer- yeah exactly so they're saying that they think it's a social behavior and um and then the question becomes in the presence of whale watch vessels are they trying to signal to each other because of the vessel presence no, yeah. masking their communication or are they is it some other thing? Because when there's fishing vessels present, they're less surface active. So it's just vessels in general? Well, when fishing vessels are present, they're less surface active. So is it that the fishing vessels are trolling slow and they're fishing, so the food's around, so the whales are focused on the food? Like, where, you know, they're trying to tease that out. And it very, that's a very good point. That's an interesting point. See, yeah. I, I feel like focusing on something like that is more beneficial than. I yeah, know. I think this was a pretty I feel like that, amazing. I feel like that's a very, that's a very interesting concept. Yeah, I think it was a pretty amazing holistic look at the situation, which was really cool yeah. to see. I, th- I it, it, it offers a more, a- I feel like that, a study based around that offers a more accurate representation of effects of vessels on killer whales. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, how you could spell it out any clearer that if there's not food, there's no southern residence. Like, yeah, here's how I'll surface. spell it out. Ugh, like, oh my gosh. What I said to you guys the other day, whale watching, and I'll extend this to all vessel traffic could stop tomorrow and it won't save the southern residents. It's like so stupid, dude. Like, it's that was, that was deep. I mean, think about it. All vessels could go away tomorrow, and it will not save these whales. What's going to save these whales is getting serious about salmon recovery. And if you keep the dams up, 
they're still not going to go up to spawn. So it's like... On, on that note, a little piece of possibly positivity. I don't know if you guys saw this, but I shared this um, on Facebook. Um, the article was shared by the Orca Behavior Institute, which is a really cool um, nonprofit uh, organization in the San and the Salish Sea that tries to focus on um, non-invasive research on the residents on the residents and uh, bigs. Um, but they just shared a article. And I'll read the caption that they wrote for it. It says, we are hearing the first murmurs of some potentially big news. A Republican congressman, Mike Simpson of Idaho, is said to be drafting a potential uh, proposal to breach the four lower Snake River dams. Idaho, represent, uh, Idaho uh, Republican Mike Simpson's office has been briefing Northwest public power officials and others on a $32 billion to $34 billion plan to breach the lower four Snake River dams and replace the 1,000 annual megawatts of lost power generation with clean energy resources and new transmission lines. Clearing Up has learned the potential, but also compensate irrigators, farmers, barge operators, electric customers, and towns that rely on the dams, including Lewiston, Idaho, and Clarkston, and the Tri-Cities in Washington. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big yeah, piece I did see of that. that. If that comes to fruition, that is game changing. Yeah. But yeah, but it needs yeah. to be done yeah. now. Yeah. Oh. Yep. I mean, j just the fact that that's even being talked about as a solution instead of all the noise that we've been hearing about around whale watchers is and noise. I think I think nice. I think that's a nice change of pace. I think that's what we yeah. should obviously be focusing on. And you know, obviously, recently with the um proposal to breach the dams in california you know maybe that's maybe this is a more realistic goal mm -hmm. yeah yeah the dam is um the dam is actually in oregon but there is water that's provided to california with sorry them, so you're those right two, yeah, yeah, yeah. those two states had to work together um Definitely. to come up with that plan but it will improve the california salmon run also Should next, uh, yeah Definitely. yeah so residents um, in Monterey. Yeah. And that may be, <laughs> that may be the thing. Like if their, if their salmon restoration goes faster than up in Washington, I think it's going to be pretty telling here in a few years to see where these whales go. Cause if they're not going to use the sailor sea anymore, you can put whale watch regulations until you're blue in the face, but the whales are coming to an entirely different state now to feed. That, and that, that's a whole different conversation. Case. If that's the case, you just have, you can't, nobody can keep denying the fact that it yeah. is based around food. If that, they show up if again look back this year, 10 years, you know, they didn't show up this year, did they, last year, did they? No, no but no one was well, well we watching. Know, in nobody was well watching in the spring. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So if they show up, and so they show up again, we'll know. Yeah. So then, the other aspect of this is, um, you know, we've got all this science going on that's trying to inform management. You've got independent academic organizations. You've got government organizations. You've got nonprofits, what have you. So then it comes down to the practicality time, right? So they've been working on this licensing process for whale watching, which is what we heard from Sarah and Jeff about. Yep. And because of the pandemic... The Senate introduced a bill 
um, to provide some relief to those companies to just kind of put a temporary fix on the whale watch licensing issue because it's so expensive and these companies have gone through such a huge financial loss. Um, and I will tell you, you know, if you hear people saying that the boat company brings in a million dollars or whatever, that's gross profit and boats not net. and human beings to insure on those boats is incredibly expensive. Yes. So that doesn't mean that they're walking away with a million dollars a year. They're not even walking away with not half even that close, much. not even close. Yeah. And if you have more than one boat, you you're just your returns are even less. So yeah. asking a company to cough up six thousand dollars for a whale watch license when they're not even going to see the whales that they're being licensed to watch. That is a decision that I think most companies are going to have to unfortunately say no to because that's way too much of a financial burden to watch whales that you see four times a year, even 10 times a year. I don't think I, you could justify that as a business. Or zero times a year. Some companies yeah, just don't watch them. Yeah. yeah. In, in case in case you aren't aware of what we're referencing to, a lot of people have been sharing recently on social medias and stuff. Um, I think it passed uh, the time to put your voice in for that yeah, bill. Yeah, but um, it was SB50. Yeah, SB 5330 essentially is trying to, like Caitlin said, reverse um, that licensing program and just make it, you know, each, com each company should have an opt-in, um, opt-out option. Their own say in whether they need to pay the $6,000 for a license for whales they aren't even going to watch. And, you know, there's yeah. a lot of kayak companies out there that, you know, are just kayaking and, like, might see whales or whatever, like – especially – and the whole point was, you know, with COVID, everybody's struggling, like we heard from Sarah and Jeff – you know, they ran less than 50% of the trips. And I think during a time where a lot of companies are really struggling, you know, that, like you said, is, is that $6,000 is a lot. And a half yeah. capacity too. It's like half the trip yeah. and a half capacity. They basically, yeah, they basically yeah. lost a quarter of their income. But let me tell you, most of their expenses did not go away. Did not go away. Exactly. Boats don't do well sitting in the water, not moving. They get more nope. and more expensive on the maintenance budget. Yep. So, um, yeah, so basically the bill was proposed to just provide an option to opt in or opt out yes. because originally the licensing program was written as a requirement of all whale watch companies, yeah. regardless of how many times they saw the whales. But then because of COVID and the financial stress, it was like, okay, now we can't really, now you're putting us in a box we can't fit in. And so, as, as, as Sarah was saying on her socials that, option to opt in or opt out will actually put less you know companies on the southern residents yeah you know because if you if you opt out of that you can't then watch you're them. not watching them yep you're not watching them at all so yeah yeah so the problem what was really disheartening to hear because you can watch these meetings they're public hearings live on the internet um what was really disheartening to hear is that people that were against the option part of the bill um we're like well these companies are then going to not buy a license and then they're going to quote unquote incidentally view southern residents and that's their loophole oh, and i was like that's so disrespectful to the companies that have been a part of this orca task force and like southern resident killer whale recovery process the entire time they're choosing to not watch these whales because financially it's a burden for them 
and they'd rather not watch him. It's a really sad situation up there. Like, it really is. Like, there are some companies that I wholeheartedly believe that people are just like, I don't even want to see him right now. Like, it's so sad. Like, totally. I think I think a lot of our friends are in that exact situation. A lot of our friends, I could I could talk to them, and they just like don't even want to talk about it sometimes because it's what they have to talk about and preach almost every single day to people. Yeah, and they're working so hard to try and save these animals, to try and research them to try and turn every passenger into a future, you know, Southern resident killer whale advocate. And then you're going to say that the, they're looking for a loophole. Like they're just out there to just screw stuff up. And like, they don't care about the whales. That's so far from the truth. I guess someone mentioned, so when I had shared that, um, where you could go and vote pro for the situation. Yeah. Yeah. They, someone wrote me and said that they did the same thing in Colorado where they forced people to pay for a hunting license to go to the national park, even if you're not hunting. That's silly. Well, and that's what you were sharing. That's what you were sharing, right? Slater. It's like, if you're a hunter, you get a hunting license. If you're a fisher, you get a fishing license. But if you're not, why would, why, why would you need that license? Yeah. If you're not going to watch Southern Resident Killer, why would you need that license? And they make you buy a hunting license to go to a national (laughs) park in Colorado just because. Like that's, that's crazy, their right? Rule. Yeah. Instead, and the, the 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 person wrote me and said like, and, or they could have just raised it fifty dollars for the park pass the year or whatever instead of making you buy a hunting line. Like that's just weird. Yeah. So I would say I don't think that these companies are looking for a loophole. They bother, you know, they bother to show up and express their opinions and express their situation that they're in and it's not easy to admit defeat when your company financially is drowning in the midst of a crisis like it's not fun to have to get on a public hearing and say my company is barely making it i can't afford the extra burden like no one wants to have to admit that like so the fact that multiple companies got on there and said that and said that they care about the whales and then people still like acted like they didn't that was that was really sad to see. I wa- when I watched the hearing I was pretty upset afterwards because the other bill that was being heard in that same hearing was 5306 which has yep. to do with salmon t- salmon habitat restoration and many of the same organizations that were against that bill we're saying that they should not allow the whale watch companies to opt out of their license. I'm like, so is it about Southern residents or not? What's it about? You don't want to save the Southern residents food. You don't want to pay for it. Everybody has to pay for it. And then you're saying that the whale watch companies should be forced to pay to watch them while you don't do anything to protect their food's habitat. Like who? what? <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a tough thing to watch. Honestly, I'm glad this is the last time we were really talking about this because it's honestly <laughs> just gotten me really fucking mad and sad and depressed. Oh, <laughs> the first effort on it. <laughs> it's uh, I just what can we do? How how can you win? It's it's yeah. the same thing with any it's defeating sort every single of, time, yeah. dude. It's we've it's all the talked same about thing this. Any sort of conservation season. or research or you know like just trying to make the world a better place. It's the same thing. Yeah. Same thing always. Always just money versus doing what's mm-hmm. right and trying to save anything. Mm-hmm. It's just so frustrating. And it's not just yeah. Southern resident killer whales. It literally it's goes not. to all everything. Yeah. Yep. It it like yep. I, I love like I love those animals. Like I've I've seen them you know, I first 
when I, when I graduated from high school, me and my buddies took a road trip up to San Juan Island specifically to see killer whales. And we, looking back on it now, like we took a trip that was kayaking with killer whales and like looking back on it now, we were so lucky to even see residents. And I, I specifically remember the guy pointing out, oh my gosh, that's J2 Granny there. And that was like one of the last sightings of her before she had passed away. And like, I will always hold that memory so fondly of like having the opportunity to kayak with killer whales. And then, you know, I, I worked there for a whole summer and then I was lucky enough to see them in Monterey with Slater and like these whales, like, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they, they mean the world to me and so many other people, but it's not just about them. It's about yeah. Chinook and it's about the eel grass mm-hmm. it's about mm-hmm. the whole ecosystem in the salish mm-hmm. sea and yeah we see we see ways in which it is completely thriving with the abundance of big killer whales and the return of humpback whales and minke harbor whales seals. harbor seals yeah, yeah. Uh, on a harbor seals and stellar sea lions and yeah and minks and bald eagles and just you you see the potential of what it can be and how how incredible it can really be Mm-hmm. But you also see the other part of it. You see the Southern residents every year fluttering between 70 members. And you see Chinook salmon populations just absolutely being demolished. And it's just like, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do at this point. Like I, Yeah. I mean, go ahead, Slater. Did you look like you're about uh, to drop I was some just knowledge? change the subject. Let's talk about yeah. the fantasies with the dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think, uh. um, yeah, this has been a good discussion and a good coverage of what's going on up there. Um, I think we probably will change gears of what's what we're going to be talking about from here on out. But, um, yeah, I just think, like, what can we do? I think just continue to advocate for responsible viewing of these animals and making decisions based on best available science and and recognize that the threat of no food is the biggest threat of all and how can we improve that you know does that mean we need to manage the fishery differently do we need to um advocate for the dams to come down i think yes you know so where can you get involved in that aspect right like because even in the i think in the 2020 paper from uh christine uh they they talked about how the size selection pressure in the salmon fishery also is leading to smaller fish so like with salmon regulations in california the fish have to be like 24 or 26 inches or longer to keep but that means all the short ones you're handling and throwing back in and their rate of survival is less so what if you just got got rid of the size specifics like i had a fisherman tell me that in monterey he's like you know what would help save salmon is if you only were allowed to keep one doesn't matter how big it is it, yeah exactly size shouldn't matter it shouldn't matter yeah. how much it shouldn't be the size the it'd be handle the fish less and just like whatever you want your magic number to be one two three whatever it is just doesn't matter what size it is just that way or, you're not constantly throwing fish back and don't take females maybe or something i don't know yeah it's possible i mean i think just the less fish you handle that have to go back out into the ocean after being injured the better you know mm-hmm. I don't think those are the strongest fish. It's, it's kind of like trout. Like, they're just not very sturdy fish. You know, no, once they're you, not. Once they're you handle fragile. them, they're like, they, I'm sure a lot of them coming die. off. They're, yeah. 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 I agree. So that's another point to look at, you know. Are there other little tweaks that can be made to overall improve 
you know, what salmon we do have. So, but I think the dams are the biggest one. I'll shout out two documentaries that we've, some of us have watched already. Artificial. So good. Artificial is so good. And Damnation, which is also made by Patagonia. And I think. Patagonia. The two, the two documentaries both talk about how much um, money (laughs) goes into. um, Sorry, Adam's being distracting. That's why I'm laughing. Uh, they both off. talk about how much mo- <laughs> how much money it costs per fish. Um, when you're talking about hatcheries and and restoration and all that, it's like thousands of dollars to save one fish. And like they could spend that same amount of money and bring the dams down and have way more fish. Like there's a there's a better way to do it. It's expensive no matter what. He had to change into his Patagonia Patagucci, shirt. You're rid- Patagucci for life. You're ri- you're ridiculous. <laughs> All right, we're, we gotta end this. Adam's getting wild over there. Adam's getting I'm... crazy at his house by himself with his dog. And my fossilized and my fossilized mako shark tooth. Don't forget. Oh, that. calm calm down, sir. Calm down. All right, Adam's getting real ruthless. <laughs> but I think I think this episode is plenty long, so I think we're. Pretty good from here. Oh, thank you to all our new Patreon people. We have oh my gosh, a lot of them. You guys are, so thank you. You guys are amazing. Ben, Therese, and at. Manoa, thank you so much for joining. Manoa, you just joined like 10 minutes before we started recording. That's awesome. Yeah, you guys, thank you so, so much. That really means the world to us. It allows yeah. us to continue doing these podcasts, and it really means the world to us. You know what? Shout out what, to all dude? eight of you. Maria, Robbie, Lizzie, Jessica, Sarah, Ben, Therese, and Manoa. You guys are Did awesome. You Thank Lindsay? you so much. Yeah, I said she was the third one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you so much, all of you. You guys, it, it means a lot to us, and uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, yeah, that's our end rant for this topic, I think. We might have some other guests over time from up there as things continue to progress, and we'll still kind of – cover it from a news aspect but i think we've said all we can say about how we feel about the situation if you guys want something cool to look up look up the manatee swimming with the bottomless dolphin off of florida <laughs> it's pretty cool yeah and i'll make you feel good about marine mammals again <laughs> <laughs> it's okay adam you're gonna get out of the boatyard eventually oh that's oh. How do you want to think about the boatyard right now? Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's at Whale Nerds. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Much love. Peace and love. Peace and love.